you are listening to Rootbound, a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. This episode of Rootbound is brought to you by Ranunculas. Is it a horrible monster or a terrible disease? No, that's ridiculous. It's Ranunculas, a pretty flower. Hey everybody, thank you for listening to this episode of Rootbound. I'm the host of the podcast and my name is Steve. And Rootbound is the podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. And each week, I invite a guest to share with us all about a plant that means something to them. And then I share with the guest about a plant that means something to me. And through this process, we can all learn more about plants and learn more about each other. Now, after talking to the guest that you're about to hear from on this week's episode, I got to thinking about why are things sour? That's the thought process I had in my mind. And so I thought I would uh, do a little research and share that with you about why do things taste sour? And it it turns out that plants have a lot to do with it. Uh, Most things that we eat that taste sour uh, have their origins in organic acids that are part of plants. So good examples of those are malic acid or citric acid or tartaric acid. Uh, Malic acid is common in apples and other fruits like that. Uh, citric acid, citrus fruit, and then tartaric acid is in wine. It's one of the things that makes wine taste sour. There's some other things like uh, mineral-based acids, like phosphoric acid that also tastes sour. Also, you know, sparkling water tastes sour, and that's simply because of the CO2 dissolved in the water, which also makes the water acidic and therefore have a sour taste. So sour and uh, acidity go hand in hand. But one interesting thing I found, and this this is all coming from a, a publication called Chemical Senses by Martin Kohlmeyer that I found. I'll link, leave a link in the show notes. But one thing that I found that was pretty interesting is that even though uh, acidic things taste sour, our tongue is not just a pH meter. Things don't taste more sour because they are more acidic. There's more going on to that, and our tongue is, is I think, uh, keying in on keying into specific things about those acids and not necessarily just their acidity because they've done tests and for example acetic acid tastes way more sour than other acids at a similar ph Um, so that's pretty interesting because acetic acid is not one of the ones that's origins are directly in plants acetic acid comes from a biological fermentation process so plant matter often being fermented by bacteria but it's interesting that our, our tongue tastes acetic acid more acidic than other acids. I thought that was pretty interesting. And yeah, that's why things taste sour. It, it has to do with acidity, but not so directly. So cool stuff. And with that, let's meet our guest. So sour, you'll get sucked in by the taste. It's lip puckering sour. Tongue-twisting tangy. Face-scrunching tart. Hi, Shane. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Rootbound. Oh, yeah, no problem. Uh, it's great to be on here. Thanks for inviting me. Um, you're very welcome. Do you have a plant to share with us today? I do. Um, I was looking through some of the catalog that uh, some people have chosen. You already picked some amazing plants that I looked through. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I don't know which one to which one to pick. <laughs> it's like getting a bit of a challenge. You know, there's uh, 80. This will be the 82nd episode, normally about two plants per episode. So, yeah, the, the number's uh, uh, ticking up there. But there are a lot of plants. So, I think... 
know, I've got a lot of runway, but the, the less common ones are getting taken, I think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, which plant did you choose? Um, I chose a staghorn sumac. Um, for me, it was one of the first things I learned how to forage and how to identify, period. So, And we have it growing, um, a native version of it that grows natively to Illinois. So we like to make lemonade and stuff with it. So it's a really cool plant. And we used to get them confused with box elder trees when we didn't know anything about plants because we had really bad uh like box elders in our <laughs> by our house my mom would be like uh, oh what are those like box elder trees out there we just saw these huge like crowns of like red clusters of stuff um and be like oh that, those are those box elder trees and then i started learning this a few years ago and now it's like oh no that's those that's sumac you get in- spice you can use it you can cook with it interesting okay so there's there's a lot a lot to cover there i i know i think i know sumac i think i've recently learned to identify it i've never i've never used it for any foraging context and i'm think i'm pretty like a basic understanding of it so i don't know where do you want to start you want to start with how it's used you want to start with like uh i don't know what fun facts and dazzling details would you like to start with here well, I think one of the big things I, I think is important to talk about is the fact that I think a lot of people, when they hear sumac, they think, oh, my gosh, poison sumac. Right. Like you're eating yeah. poison sumac. I've heard that so many times. And it's like this is it's in the same family um, as uh, poison, uh, poison sumac, but it's a completely different genus. Uh-huh. So it's safe to eat anything that you find in the rust genus those sumacs all of those are edible in that genus so if you can identify the fact that it's a uh, rus sumac then you know it's going to be safe to eat uh toxic origin actually, i'm definitely saying the latin name wrong to- toxicodendron um, i know that because i've talked a lot about poison ivy yes yeah yes so your poison ivy poison oak and poison sumac all of that is in toxica toxic- toxicodendron yeah Toxicodendron. All of those are in the same uh, genus, and they have the same compound uracil that gives you that really nasty blistering if you get it on you. So all of those have the same uh, chemical that makes you have rashes, and all of it is in the same thing. So, so that's in the toxic toxic toxicodendron. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the the um, <laughs> the uh, Latin names uh, are definitely. It's a theme on this podcast of mispronouncing those. So don't don't worry about it. It's a so it's a challenge. Oh yeah, um, but everything in that genus is what you want to look out for. But rust is what I'm talking about. Is where staghorn sumac is. Um, Illinois, where I'm at, uh, has I think three native ones. We have winged sumac, staghorn, and I think smooth sumac. Mm. Uh, staghorn, you can identify. It's going to have really fuzzy stems on it, like almost kind of like deer antlers. Oh, okay. Um, oh, and they also have these very prominent like red crown horns on here. So when you see them, you know it. And uh, these are the this species of sumac. Um, you don't, um, you can't juice. So all the seasoning and stuff is on the outside. It's kind of gonna have, be like a dust that you can kind of just rub off on your fingers, which kind of tastes like sour patch kids. They're really sour mm. and lemony, and they're really good. Um, but so last year we you took those berries, and they grow in like they're it's like, like a compound berry flower stalk. You'll find hundreds of berries just in one flower stalk. Yeah, they kind of so look like use I, they kind of look like a cone of flowers. Is that right? Like am I describing that yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Mhm. They grow on these like very prominent like red cones. Um but you can make uh we use it to make lemonade or tea um with it. It's very high. They have a lot of uh vitamin C content. So if you're sick and you want to like kind of boost your vitamin C content, you can also 
use uh, sumac for that as well. Um, you can boil it, boil it and make a tea or lemonade out of it, or you can cold steam it, like not cold steam it, but leave it in a cold uh, bowl with cold water for a few days. And that it will be arguably more flavorful because sometimes you can, if you boil the stems and it'll kind of get some of that bitterness in there that you don't want. But overall, like we mainly use it to as like a nice summertime drink. We'll mix lemons in there and make like this pink lemonade type of oh, deal with cool. it. Which I wonder, I don't know if I haven't looked this up myself, but I wonder if that's if sumac is where pink lemonade comes from huh. because it tastes like lemonade. It's like this very citrusy taste to it and it's red and pink and has that color. And I think this may be where pink lemonade comes from. I'm not too sure. But it would make sense because what is pink lemonade? <laughs> totally, totally. That's a great theory for sure because, yeah, pink lemonade, I mean, there's no, I mean, maybe there are some pinkish lemons somewhere, but they're definitely not common. And I guess if you were like, I'm just putting myself like back when lemonade became popular, if you're like in Illinois in like the, maybe in like the 1800s, lemons may not be really that accessible all the time, but sumac probably is. So uh, yeah, yeah. If, you, if you like that sour sweet beverage, that that's, that's an interesting theory. If it's uh if it's not true, it should be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, we've also used it. You can, people use it. It's also grown in the Middle East. They have mm. different varieties of it that grows there. So they use it to make hummus from seasoning to meats and stuff. When they use it, like they dry the berries out and crush them and use them like that. Mm. Um, I'm pretty sure some shawarma restaurants use it too. I'm not too sure. Um, but I have used, I haven't used it in a culinary way. I've just used it as like for making drinks or teas and stuff like that. Interesting. Yeah, I, that rings a bell now. And I think I had this like confusion in my mind of hearing sumac and and not really knowing where it's from. But I guess like some of some of those uh, genuses of plants there, they're like, you know, there's different genuses all around the world that, you know, they, they, and, and similar uses in different places. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I mean, some of them, like, I think some people will get into this perspective about plants of wanting to just use them. And like, sometimes they're just good for the, and generally good for the environment, even though they're not necessarily used as like for culinary use, but sometimes the wood of them is good, or you can use them for like bushcraft stuff, like survival stuff too. So there's a whole wide range of stuff that isn't just from eating too. And I think it's interesting when, um, at least when I like started learning, this is like, there's so much uses from this that we're not really taking advantage of or mm -hmm. just like trying to build an environment where we have different things growing and we're using native stuff that grows here that we don't use. I've seen sumac growing so much around here and I'm surprised that more people aren't using it or it isn't mm -hmm. a commercial product here in the Midwest since it grows so prevalent so much and then like an abundance that we aren't using it or seeing it more. Maybe farmers markets have it. But I mean in the sense where more people are using like local flavorings of stuff that is really good to use. That's a really great point. I mean, something I've thought about a lot has come up a number of times on the podcast. I think two things you covered. I think one is is that idea, yes, of um, there's all these things that are so abundant uh, around and that people don't seem to use them. And, and I have this like theory, very loose theory, that uh, when things are so abundant there's no market for them because you can't sell something that's free, right? And and like <laughs> capitalism can't really deal with something that is completely like abundant, right? So like mm -hmm. um, 
but but it doesn't mean that you can't like just be part of it and forge it yourself and like take advantage of it and and then kind of like extricate yourself at least for a little bit about out of that like market system and enjoy like the abundant abundant things. Uh, the other thing you said, which really struck with me, is and I've fallen into this trap a little bit of sometimes always thinking about a plant about how it can be used and not thinking about the plant as far as it like just being the plant and how it exists in the ecosystem. And like some plants have really great uses, but also not every plant is for us. Uh, right. And, and not even, you know, so uh, that, that's a really good point. Uh, when I was talking about poison ivy and a few episodes ago, uh, one mm-hmm. of my guests mentioned that it's like poison ivy. Yeah. That's not for us. It's for the birds. It's for all these other animals that eat it. <laughs> it's specifically not for us. Right. It, 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 like it really only affects humans the way in that way. So, um, but but uh but but uh, staghorn sumac seems to be you know maybe both. It's good for good native plant, but also good for uh, for making lemonade with. Oh yeah, uh, I I'm sure there, I'm I know the um, farmers grow it like along banks of um what's it called? They grow them along banks of like farms too to mm-hmm. help like as a wind block. Oh okay. But they grow if they grow pretty aggressively. Like, we've had one so the patch that we have growing near us. Um, or on our property just landed or just started popping up like three years ago and it's at a point now where like it grows similarly to ginger so there's a lot of rise there's a rhizome structure mm. that grows under the earth that grows really it'll grow shoot far out from the main plant so you'll have like huge thickets of the sumac growing it'll probably just be one main plant that's mm. growing but it just grows and takes over really aggressively uh, some people say that it's in, uh, invasive. It's not necessarily invasive. It is native, but it will, if you let it grow and unmanaged, it will block out a lot of stuff that's coming up. Yeah. That's, that's um, a, a really good point too. I think, I think people often confuse invasive with just like successful and, and like, you know, invasive plant is, <laughs> is in general a plant that is non-native that is also like too successful but yeah i don't think a, i don't think a native plant can be an invasive you might think it's a weed you might not like it but i tend to like yeah be cool with any native plant that's being very successful because often they get out competed by the non-native stuff <laughs> yeah um i think it's it's cool like back to what you said earlier too about um like stuff not being for us too um i my main focus of why i'm learning this too or uh it's like permaculture so like mm-hmm. learning how the environment works with each other and trying to grow plants that um that we can use to help build one build healthier soil so we can get better food production mm-hmm. and uh two, like kind of like stop monocropping it's that's another thing that's a huge mm-hmm. like damage to the environment but like just learning, even if we can't use plants, how do we grow plants that work with each other to benefit the ones that we do want to use? Mm-hmm. Um, I think poison ivy, like as an example of like it is, it isn't for us, but people use it. Same thing with some honeysuckles. Mm-hmm. Um, I see that like I've heard somewhere that you could supposedly eat the flowers. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> of, of, of which poison <laughs> ivy? Have, of uh, honeysuckle. Oh, honeysuckle. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I, we talked about honeysuckle an episode a while back, and all of the honeysuckle where I live is invasive. It's for, it's there's a couple yeah. from Asia. There are some native mm-hmm. to North America that I don't know if I've ever seen. I think maybe I'm not sure where, where you are, um, but you can't always do the thing. This is what I do as a kid. I'm pretty sure it was invasive honeysuckle. Mm-hmm. Uh, you pull off the 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 like from the back of the flower, you pinch it, and you pull it back. And you get this little drip of nectar on the end, and you can put. That's why it's called a honeysuckle because you can actually like see a droplet of nectar when you pinch the flower and pull it out. Have you ever done that? 
Oh wow, I've I've actually never never done that myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can I think that's fine to do. Audience, don't quote me on this and always make sure you know what you're doing before you consume it. But I'm pretty sure all honeysuckles you can do that. You can you can get the nectar. You don't want to I think not all the flowers if you're like try to make tea from the flowers. I think most mm-hmm. of them you can and the berries no, but you can like yeah. pinch the back of the, it and it, basically like the the like stamen comes out, I guess, which is whatever, or an anther. I don't. I'm really bad at the biology, but when you pinch it, one of those <laughs> one of those biological parts comes out away from the petals, and it brings with it a little drop that you can see on the end of the nectar, which is pretty cool. That's why they have that oh, name. Oh wow! Yeah, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, give it a try. Give there's it a always try. that's. Oh yeah, there's, that's why I like to. There's always new stuff like. You can go to the same place multiple times where you'll see sumac or other stuff growing. You'll always see new stuff or new variations of it or new, like, insects and stuff that fly to a certain plant. Like, there's always something new to learn, like, doing this. Totally. It's, it's great. And that, that reminds me of what you said kind of at the beginning of the show. And I I've ha- I can't think of an exact experience like this, but of that idea of where, where you've, like, misidentified something for years or, like, you haven't learned enough about, about plants to like really know it so like you're misidentifying it with box elder and i think now now like you could tell those two apart no problem right um between like sumac and and but like i had that i think that a similar experience with um oh with a peach tree in my house i couldn't i thought it was like uh mm-hmm. i thought it was a um a, a young walnut because i was trying to analyze the leaves and i didn't really know what i was looking for right and then like you're like oh uh, that's like the dumbest thing <laughs> that i should have known what that was from the beginning but that that, that um it's really interesting how that uh, when you when you when you learn to see a plant, then it just becomes so mm-hmm. obvious, and you can spot it immediately, right? Um, it, it's an yeah. interesting experience. It's like the new car effect. <laughs> you get a new car, and then you start seeing it on the road. The more it was always there, but now you're just driving that car. Totally, totally. <laughs> um, do we miss any other fun facts or dazzling details about the staghorn sumac? Um. Not that, not that I can know of off the top of my. Oh, there's one more thing, um, which I don't know how true this is, but I was doing broad research about like all kind of uses of the plant, and supposedly people used to use crush up the leaves and put them in like herbal blends for like uh, like smoking pipes with like mullen and stuff oh, for like medicinal use. Um, I don't know how true that is or the effects of it. It's one of those things where like. <laughs> Like folk medicine, there's supposed belief that there's not enough research done in it to like really know what the like prolonged effects of it are. Um, For sure, yeah. But you, I, you read that stuff a lot, and you're like might find one or two references to something that's repeated over and over again. But it's it's always hard to tell any any. Yeah, yeah. Um, just one last question, and I mm-hmm. think you'd answered this earlier, but just to tie the dots together, is it called staghorn sumac because the branches have that fuzziness like? an antler of a young deer or is it called staghorn sumac because the flowers are like do you know why it's called staghorn sumac i guess is my question i'm actually don't know but if i would make a a decent guess i think it's the first one because it does look like deer antlers Ah, um i think that flower structure is kind of relates to a lot of sumacs and not just this one i think this one is specific because it has that really thick velvety coating on the stalks of it my sweetie turned sour on me. Yes, my sweetie turned sour on me. Her kisses used to taste like honey. Now there's something wrong. They taste to me like vinegar since someone came along. I called her my sweetie.
sugar and how What a pickle she's got me now I left her alone once too often And gee, my sweetie turned sour on me Well, well, thank you for sharing about staghorn sumac with me. Do you mind if I share a plant with you? Oh, not at all. Cool. So this one, um, if you you might know about this plant, so if you have anything to share, feel free to jump in. And I chose this plant specifically, okay. and maybe you can guess what it is when I say this. I chose this plant specifically because it is a plant that is often confused with sumac, but it is not sumac. Can you guess what I'm talking about? Uh, like by based off the leaves or based off the flowers? Based off the leaves. Um, maybe walnuts because the they both have compound leaves. Good, 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 know. good guess. I'm talking about Tree of Heaven. Are you familiar with Tree of Heaven? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> which which I heard a little bit in your voice. Of a Tree of Heaven is is a very invasive plant, um, and the reason I chose to talk about it because it's one of those invasives that. I'm oh I feel like I'm always combating in my yard like it pops up so quick and I'm trying to like keep it at bay and it's just incredible how fast it pops up but it I learned some f- fascinating things about this plant it, it's you know it's one of those things that's like a very uh very maligned plant and and it is a problem outside of its native range but it doesn't mean there's a lot not like things to like learn about it and 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 always we talk about uh, we said this several times on this podcast. When we talk about invasive plants, when plants are invasive, it's not really their fault, right? They're they're yeah. they're here. They're doing their thing as a plant. They got brought here by us at most times, and and they they're just succeeding as a plant. So um, it doesn't mean we we need to like not uh, control invasives, but it doesn't mean we need to completely, I think, hate them. So lots of interesting things about the, this tree. Um, I said it was often confused with. Uh, Sumac. In fact, one of its names, so uh, let me just go back to names here. Its scientific name is Iolanthus altissima, most commonly known, mm. at least in English-speaking com- countries, as Tree of Heaven. But it is also sometimes known as Stinking Sumac, which I didn't know until I read that up. Um, yeah. And it's called that because it's, I, I've never actually gotten close to its flowers, but apparently it smells very bad. Um, so that's why it's called, because it kind of looks like a sumac. Uh, uh, but it, it, but it stinks. So stinking sumac, um, like, like toxicodendron and roos, it's in the same family, but it is a different genus. So the genus is Iolanthus. Um, but historically people were trying to like pin down its genus, like back in the day and different people at mm-hmm. different times had it in genus roos and then also had it in genus toxicodendron for a time. Uh, but then decided that it is actually genus Iolanthus, and I think they were a little bit confused with what family to put it in, because it's the only species in Iolanthus that is not tropical. All the rest of the Iolanthus are in tropical regions, and Tree of Heaven is the only one that is in um, the temperate region. So they were having trouble, I think, pinning it down to what it should be, because it wasn't kind of like anything else in the rare area, so that's interesting. Um, let's see. What to talk about here? Uh, its name... It's Latin name, Ilanthus altissimus cool. Um, alt- uh, one of my cats is being very noisy. <laughs> I'm doing a podcast, buddy. <laughs> um, uh, it's 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 a Latin name, uh, Ilanthus altissima. So altissima just means tall. So this is the tallest of the Ilanthus. 
Um, okay. But Ilanthus or Ilanthus pronunciation, I don't know. Ilanthus, it's A-I-L-A-N-T-U-S. Um, it's pretty cool because it comes from, and I learned a bunch of stuff just from this word. It comes from an Ambonesian word, and Ambone- the Ambonese are an ethnic group in Indonesia. I always like it when when the uh, when the um, scientific names actually take on a native name as opposed to just something that you know Linnaeus made up or you know back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so it comes from it comes from this Ambonesian word, and it and it and it means likely either tree of heaven, which is probably where the transliteration into English came from. But probably more accurately, it means tree of the sky and may just refer to how fast it grows, that it goes up to the sky very very quickly. So I always wondered why it was called tree of heaven because it's like everyone hates it. (laughs) But um, (laughs) it's probably more likely a reference to how fast it grows. Um, Because it's so invasive, actually, it's sometimes called tree of hell. (laughs) Some some gardeners jokingly call it tree of hell. Um, and and th- there's two other you know two reasons why you could also call it tree of hell that I didn't realize until recently. I mean the main one is just because it's so hard to deal with a, as an invasive, but two other reasons yeah. is one it does produce allopathic compounds, so those are the compounds in its roots that kill other plants. So it, it is able to outcompete other plants because it actually prevents germination of other plants near where it grows. Um, and there's a number of plants that do that, but having an invasive that does that is particularly, like, bad. Um, and then the other one, which I didn't realize, is that it's a host to several invasive pests, including the spotted lanternfly. So that, uh, you got, do you have that up there yet in, in Chicago, the spotted lanternfly? I'm not- I'm not familiar with it. Or Illinois. I'm still, I'm still learning uh, a little bit about like, uh, is it taxonomy of insects? There's, there's some, there's is a word for the research of insects. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's uh, entomology. Re- yes, entomology. Yes, entomology. Um, I haven't really, I've gotten a little bit into that. But I haven't really tracked too much like of the in, invasive insects that are coming here. But so I don't think we have that over here yet. The spotted lanternfly over here on the east coast is like. Mm-hmm. It is the last few years, everyone like this is the new terrible invasive. It's popping up everywhere. It's just really detrimental to tons of, of, of native species. It just like devours it. Uh, they, you know, there's all these like warnings. Like if you see a spotted lanternfly, kill it immediately. It is like kill on sight invasive species. And apparently it is so prevalent because the tree of heaven is so prevalent. Uh, the spotted lanternfly relies on the tree of uh, uh, heaven as part of its life cycle. So because this one plant is so pre- prevalent uh, and then the spotted lanternfly got, got introduced relatively recently, even though the tree of heaven has been in North America for quite a while, uh, it has aided in the spread of the super invasive bug. And so I wouldn't be surprised if, if you start to see it over there. It's, it's, uh, it's going everywhere. We, I haven't seen it in my really specific area yet, but people like not too mm-hmm. far away have seen it. And one of my friends up in New York is seeing the little larva all over her garden. And it's, it's, a, it's like a huge problem. So um, that's, an, that's one reason why it's, um, it's bad. Okay. I have two more super fascinating facts about the tree of heaven. Oh yeah, shoot. <laughs> uh, one <laughs> in its well, just quickly in its in its native range in, in China, it is is a much less uh, hated tree, and in fact, it's it's very commonly used in traditional Chinese medicine. Uh, it, apparently, in some of these ancient Chinese texts, it's it's some of, one of the first trees mentioned. It was like so prominently known. 
Um, but the but the aspect of its like life in its native Asia that stood out to me is that it is host to a uh, a moth called the Ailanthus silk moth, and this is a separate species from the traditional silk moth. So this. I forget the Latin names. Uh, apologies to any entomologist listening to the podcast. But the <laughs> the silk moth that makes the silk that we all kind of know as silk only eats mulberry leaves. Mm-hmm. But there is a separate species of moth that produces a similar silk that only eats a leaf of the tree of heaven. And that silk is apparently stronger and cheaper than the silk we know, but it has an inferior texture and gloss so it's not as like expensive um but it is a, it is a, uh, it's the only other commercial silk in the world besides the the one that eats mulberries which is pretty fascinating yeah oh wow i yeah. didn't know there was anything else that uh that produced silk like that i tree of heaven was uh, was brought over here i i don't re- wait how was it brought over here or is it just yeah i think it was stuff? brought over quite a long time ago as an ornamental tree um is why oh, it was brought over. Okay. Because it grows so fast and it's it's pretty, you know, it looks nice. Um Yeah. And it grows in really good environment like easily in almost any environment. So I think it was brought over as like a street tree and, and other ornamentals. Okay. Because yeah. my follow up question would have been like I wonder if it was brought over similarly to white mulberry trees for like silk production and then it just like, oh no, now we have this invasive tree that's growing everywhere. Yeah, it's a that's a good that's a good point. Because yeah, that's that is the story of the white mulberry. Um I guess it wasn't, even though the uh, Ailanthus silk moth has also been introduced to North America, but unlike the, I didn't know this till recently either, the, the moth that we use to make silk has been domesticated for so long, it cannot survive in the wild. It, it relies on humans to cultivate that moth. Like, it can't chew its way out of its... Because we've bred it to have really thick cocoons because that's where the silk is. So it normally cannot chew its own way out of its own cocoons. Like, people have to cut the bugs out of the cocoons. The males can't fly anymore because, they, because of they've been selectively bred for generations and generations. So, like, humans have to actually transfer them to the females. Um, so the, wow. the silk moth for, like, growing silk is kind of just completely this domesticated creature now. But the Ailanthus silk moth is more of a wild-like moth. And so theoretically, I don't know if anyone's ever done this, theoretically you could track down wild Ailanthus silk moths in North America and collect little bits of silk. It would probably not be worth the effort. But, but, it, <laughs> but, it, but theoretically it could be done. Oh, wow. That's yeah. really cool. I didn't know, like... Um... I didn't know there was like invasive like in, uh, insects that were hopping on Tree of Heaven. I've only seen it maybe once or twice in person at all. Oh wow! Maybe that's just me not having traveled that much, at least around the states. Um, like I've ju- I've been to like around the Midwest at least for foraging. Like, I didn't start doing this until like a few years ago. So sure. mostly I've just been around the Midwest, and I learned a little bit of stuff from like the East and West Coast that kind of has some like crossover like uh species that go but i haven't like gone out and looked for it i think yeah. this year i do want to go out and look at more trees though because there's they're really interesting and they are kind of one of the founding like blocks if you will for like growing life and uh adding to the environment too yeah totally i think you know there's a good point about tree of heaven if i think if you go in places that are good for foraging you're you may be less likely to run into it because it's better at kind of colonizing disturbed areas and kind of taking air over areas mm, that don't have okay. a lot growing. And it has trouble. I was reading 
growing in places where there's already an overstory. It, it has trouble kind of okay. breaking through. It can grow really, really fast if it gets the chance. So if like it grows in an area that's already open, good luck anything else growing below it. But if there's already like a nice canopy, it has trouble. So you won't find it in like a, a like a like a nice like natural forest. Um, but uh, if you like drive down like a, along roads and just look off along roads. I, I, maybe not in Illinois. Around here, it's it's <laughs> everywhere. Though. You see it; it's everywhere along roads. Okay, the last super interesting fact I learned about it is um, I, I read about this this book. I read about this book recently when I was just tr- thinking about trees in general. So there's this book that's called A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. It's by someone named Betty Smith. It was written in the early 1900s, and it was a very popular okay. book has many adaptations into movies and references. It was like it was quite a hit for the time. And it's essentially this uh, semi-autobiographical book about this you know, woman and, um, and like, her struggles to succeed uh, in kind of from a, like, lower-class family in Brooklyn. And um, the story is called The Tree Grows in Brooklyn, and it's actually specifically referencing The Tree of Heaven. And I'll read the quote, this one quote from the book now that is... Uh, kind of like the specific mention of Tree of Heaven. Um, It says, There's a tree that grows in Brooklyn. Some people call it the Tree of Heaven. No matter where its seed falls, it makes a tree which struggles to reach the sky. It grows in boarded up lots and out of neglected neglected rubbish heaps. It grows up out of cellar gratings. It is the only tree that grows out of cement. It grows lushly, survives without sun, water, and seemingly without earth. It would be considered beautiful, except that except that there are too many of it. So <laughs> I thought that was a pretty poetic thing about this tree. And, and and maybe kind of the lesson you can learn from this invasive tree is that it is so uh, resilient, right? And I think it can be like, yeah. you know, and, and I guess the book uses that tree as a metaphor often uh, for the character and how she kind of like succeeds despite having no... You know, mm-hmm. no metaphorical sun water or earth to come from but you know there there's a way to like peek out from the concrete and make your way to the sky from nothing grew life totally <laughs> totally so yeah, yeah you, super go ahead oh, oh i'm sorry oh sorry i thought you were gonna say something i interrupt you uh oh. yeah so i mean it's a super fascinating tree super complicated you know it's invasive but it has these interesting qualities um yeah, I, I didn't expect to, like, have so many fascinating things to say about this tree that literally I'm like, every time one pops up on my mirror, I'm like, go away. How do you keep popping up? But that's that's what it does. <laughs> wow. Well, we don't have uh, – it's crazy how fast, like I, – and I think it's good more people are paying attention to invasive, uh, invasive plants. But I, I haven't seen – uh, tree of heaven out here and I'm, I'm sure it is probably one of those things that does take a long time to kind of manage um i, I probably if they got it mixed in if it's in the same family as cash it probably does grow aggressively like kind of sumac does yeah i'm sure it does <laughs> and, and maybe maybe i mean i don't know it could be you have to let me know if you start to see it now you might if you start having the new car effect when <laughs> with with the tree of heaven now that we've talked about it, <laughs> it it's possible that it doesn't grow as far north uh, you know, because it, it is a temperate tree, but maybe it does need to be a little bit lower. It gets much colder up there in, in Illinois than it does down here in uh, northern Virginia. 
but I, I think I wouldn't be surprised if it grows. I actually haven't looked at its range. So maybe that's a function of why it's up there. Or maybe it's just you haven't noticed it. Um, audience, if you know the answer, <laughs> let me know. I should look at I should look up its range. I, I didn't I didn't yeah. uh, it's invasive range, but um but yeah, keep an eye out for it. Like so oh this is a good one last thing I'll say. Mm-hmm. When I first learned what it looked like, I was like, oh, it looks like sumac. I get it. And so, and so actually from a distance, so this, two, sorry, two more things to note, audience, sorry, mm-hmm. uh, about his biology. Um, it does have pinnately compound leaves, uh, very long compound leaves, very much like sumac. Um, and its seeds form these really dense clusters that are red. And from a distance, it kind of looks like the sumac flowers. But when you get close, you realize that the, that the seeds are samaras like a, like a, like a maple tree. There are these really dense mm-hmm. clusters, though, those little winged seeds. So when you get close, you can totally, by the flower, you can totally tell it's not sumac. But from a distance... Are the Samaras red? Yes. Like a fiery yellow red? Yes. I've definitely seen it then now. Because yeah. I don't really... It's probably... That's what those are. I've seen them. Yeah, we have them up here then. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're distinctively like a fiery orange. It's like It kind of has like a gradient. Yeah. From like uh, red. To, yep, we have them up here. Yeah. And when you see them from a distance, <laughs> when you see them hanging like up in a tree in the distance... And you can't see them close. They kind of look like the 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 way the seed heads on a, a sumac look. But yeah, when you get closer, you're like, oh yeah, that's totally not. So that um, that's a pretty interesting thing about them. Um, but when I first started learning about them, I was like, oh, that's tree of heaven. Everything around here is tree of heaven. Nothing sumac. And my grandma sent me this picture. She lives near a national park here uh, in uh, in Virginia. And she sent me a picture. And she's like, what's this? And I was like, oh, that's just tree of heaven. It's invasive. But then I looked closer. And I was like, oh, oh, no. That is sumac. Oh, um, I just was like <laughs> writing off anything that might be sumac because of tree heaven, but it's not. It's not necessarily the case. We do have sumac around here as well. Okay, yeah. I need to start using. I highly recommend it making lemonade. I'm gonna do it. Oh, highly recommend it. What What is the What is the timing for f- the flowers? Um, late mid to late summer. Okay, but you can get them pretty resilient. The staghorn variety by us is pretty resilient because they don't have any juice in them. That coating on there stays all the way up until like the kind of early winter. Oh, even, cool! If the weather's been good, so you can still go out and grab them. You just kind of have. You're then at that point, you're competing with like kind of picking through bugs or worrying about the birds getting to them before you do. Sure, but still, you can find them. I have cone like five, five or six cones that I have saved from last year, and I think they kind of cure better if you have them sitting in a paper bag for a couple mm. months. I don't know if it makes the flavor stronger, but. I found that those that I've had, say, from last year are working out to be really strong and fragrant compared to the ones that are blooming this year. I, um, I did harvest the, um, the same time this year, but I don't know if it's like the season's been pushed back from all the dry weather we've been mm-hmm. having or if it's been uh, because I, I don't know. I don't know, but I do recommend trying it, keeping it in the paper bag and keep it for as long as you want. Um, ah, I'm going to try that. I'm gonna, I I think I know a place in my neighborhood where there is some. I haven't been over there in a little bit, so I don't know what the flower situation it, is, but I'm going to check it out. If it's got hairy stalks and fuzz, and you can like get the zest on your fingers, then that's the staghorn okay. variety. If it's got juice, and it's probably going to be smooth-winged or another one of the native sumacs. I don't know the distribution that well okay. uh, for the East Coast, but I'm, I'm sure it's probably maybe one of the juice varieties then. Cool. I'll, I'll check it out. Yeah, because I don't. I don't know. I like. I know it's sumac, but I've never really gotten close enough to it. So, uh, I, I, okay. I, I'm pretty confident in my ability to tell that it's not. 
not Tree of Heaven now versus the Sumac versus Tree of Heaven, but uh, but I, I don't know what variety mm-hmm. it is. So that'll be my next challenge. Thank you for that inspiration to to look into the Sumac. <laughs> oh, and I'm definitely going to be looking around. I probably am going to like catalog some of the Tree of Heavens around me because I've probably I have seen them now that I like visually like gradient the if when you said Samaras with like the gradient, I'm like what are those trees? I've been seeing those myself and just haven't really picked up a book to kind of go up and identify them. <laughs> yeah, look look at the leaves cuz you know there are, there might be a couple other things with Samaras, but if they have those long pinnately compound leaves, like one mm-hmm. one leaf will be made up of like up to 40 leaflets actually. Um so like these really long uh, compound leaves, it's definitely tree of heaven. Um but yeah, uh, yeah. What a great conversation. Thank you for talking about Sumac, and uh, thank you for letting me share Tree of Heaven with you. Oh, yeah. Thanks for sharing Tree of Heaven. I mean, it's great. That's not something that you don't hear too much about it out here. You yeah. Know? It's a cool plant. And people tend to, like, cast off those invasives and not talk about them. And I've, I've liked that on this podcast. I'm always the one on the on the show talking about the invasive ones because they're the <laughs> ones that... that yeah, anyway, uh, I, I talk about them a lot because, you know, I think they have something to offer, even though they may not have something to offer specifically mm-hmm. for our environment. They're, they're interesting plants. By chance, have you um, covered uh, autumn olives, autumn olive trees? I we did. have those really bad yes. up here. Yes, yes. In fact, uh, do you know, I think he's also in, um, in Illinois, Wild Edible World. Do you know that podcast, Michael from Wild Edible World podcast? Oh no, I haven't heard. Check no. him out. I think he's I love the okay. I think he's also in Illinois, but he talked about autumn olives, and I, I'm very curious to see if I can find some around me. I don't know where any are. I mean, I don't know where any are um, specifically. But yeah, like super invasive, but also really, really tasty. Apparently, mm-hmm. I've never tried the berries myself, but I saw that you could make green tea from the leaves if oh. you process them the same way. So I thought I had that idea. So I was like, okay, so if you can process them like green tea, what if you process them and ferment and oxidize them like how you do black tea? And I wonder if I could get kind of like, it's invasive, it's already here. So why not try to use it the best we can? Or if there's something that we can use out of it, that would be cool. Yeah, super cool. So I thought, could you make a black tea out of it? That's a good question. And I did, and it's actually really close to black tea. That is super cool. Yeah. that's really fascinating. Um, I did that once with, um, there's a plant I have in my yard called, um, it's, uh, oh, what is its Latin name? It's, it's, I call it yerba nice. Sometimes it's called Mexican mint marigold. It's in the marigold family. It's called okay. um, Tagetus lucida. And, and I did, it, it has this like a, uh, it has like a licorice flavor, but I, I had that thought too of Ooh. like, could you process this like black tea and it worked, and I feel like people aren't 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 like exploiting that method with enough different plants. Like we just do it with tea, and there's yeah. like there's not many other plants that people do that commonly with. But it's a really interesting method. It is, and I feel like there's a lot of like cool things that we could be using to make similar teas with or making stuff that is native, or even if it's not native, it's starting to become naturalized here. The stuff yeah. that is growing that we can use to make stuff that's that's here already. Super cool. I have to try that with with the autumn olive tea. So you you re- you're really enjoying that that fermented autumn olive tea. Huh? It came out pretty good. It's really close to me. It tasted like a fusion between green and black tea. It's like a mix because green tea kind of has that maybe leafier, earthy mm-hmm. taste, whereas black tea kind of has like that. Um, it's like a I don't know, like a roasted taste, mm-hmm, more mm-hmm. of a roasted taste to it. Um, it doesn't have caffeine in it though. That sure. you only get that from the tea plant, but. 
if you want to have a nice drink to have, then it is it is good. Cool. Well, yeah, I think that's that's something I need, really need to explore more. Is just using that method on other kinds of plants because I feel like yeah, that's that's super cool that you did that. And I'm gonna keep my when I when I try to go on my mission this fall for autumn olives, I'll keep that in mind because yeah, I only learned about those last year and I kind of missed the boat on them. And I need to keep keep an eye out for them because they're kind of a fall berry. I think anyway. I guess the leaves. Are yeah, really, but yeah. the leaves you can get anytime. Good call. Anyway. That was an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for uh, for all the inf- interesting information. And uh, yeah, thanks for joining me on this episode of uh, Rootbound. Oh yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me, Steve. It's been nice. Did you see it, Papa? What? Out the window. Our tree, they've killed it. Well, will you look at that now? They didn't have any right to kill it, did they, Papa? Oh, now, wait a minute. They didn't kill it. Why, they couldn't kill that tree. Honest? Why, sure, baby. Don't tell me that tree's gonna lay down and die that easy. Look at that tree. See where it's coming from? Right up out of the cement. Didn't nobody plant it. It didn't ask the cement could it grow. It just couldn't help growing so much, it pushed that old cement right out of the way. Well, when you're busting with something like that, can't anybody help it. Like, like that little old bird up there. Listen to him. <laughs> he didn't ask anybody could he sing, and he certainly didn't take any lessons. He's so full of singing, it's just got to bust out someplace. Why, they could cut that old tree right down to the ground, and a root would push up someplace else in the cement. You wait till spring pimmer down, and you'll see. That was a little clip from the 1945 film version of A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Now, let's talk about Pink Lemonade. I am sad to share with you that uh, the origins of Pink Lemonade are not related to uh, sumac. Um, The origins are a little bit stranger and not altogether related to plants, but I thought I would share with you anyway what I found because it's pretty uh, entertaining, I I must say. So, uh, I found this article called The Unusual Origins of Pink Lemonade uh, in Smithsonian Magazine by Laura Keneary, and uh, it's clear that um, pink lemonade's origins are with the circus. So lemonade is actually a European drink, and that was brought over by European uh, settlers. But pink lemonade itself became popularized and probably has its origins directly in the circus. Um, by like the late 1800s, that was just a thing. Every circus had pink lemonade. But its origins are a little bit curious, and uh, this article breaks down two possible origins, neither of them sumac-related, but both very interesting. The first one I'll read um, from a uh, that uh, the first one I'll read is from an obituary in the New York Times, I think, in like 1912 or something like that. And the headline of the obituary is "Inventor of Pink Lemonade Dead." <laughs> very to the point. Good headline. I'm going to read this whole. Um, I'm going to read this whole obituary here because it's not too long and pretty interesting. So it says, uh, Henry E. Allot, known all through the Middle West as Bunk Allen, member of the old Chicago gambling syndicate, saloon keeper, theatrical promoter, circus man, and inventor of pink lemonade, died here today. At 15, he ran away with a circus and obtained a lemonade concession. One day, while mixing a tub full of the orthodox yellow kind, he dropped some red cinnamon candies in by mistake. The resulting rose-tinted mixture sold so surprisingly well that he continued to dispense its 
that he continued to dispense his chance discovery. So yes, <laughs> this claims that it was an accidental drop of some cinnamon candies in the lemonade that caused pink lemonade, and it was so popular that he kept doing it. Uh, so that is one origin in the circus with this guy named Henry Allett, who is also a member of a gambling syndicate. And he, <laughs> so what a, what a guy, inventor of pink lemonade and a gambler, saloon keeper, theatrical promoter, uh, circus man. Yeah, I thought that was pretty entertaining. The other origin of Pink Lemonade is also pretty strange, also not plant-related, uh, but is also related to the circus. And this uh, comes from a 1921 book called The Ways of the Circus Being the Memories and Adventures of George Conklin, Tamer of Lions. And this was a book by a guy named Harvey Root, and it was full of interviews with this uh, famous lion tamer named George Conklin. And George Conklin claims that his brother invented Pink Lemonade one day, when he was trying to mix up the batch of pink lemonade, he realized that he had ran out of water. And uh, the circus being the kind of show that must go on, he found a tub of water nearby that recently one of the performers had been washing her pink tights in or her red tights and the water was pink. And he just proceeded to uh, make the lemonade with the tight water. <laughs> and that is how he uh, decided to make pink lemonade. So. I like the, the Candies version better. <laughs> I would even like the Sumac version better, but that appears not to be true. Um, but yes, maybe the origin of Pink Laminated has to do with uh, laundry water. Uh, so yeah, uh, I think that's all I have to share with you today. So thank you for joining me on this episode of Rootbound. Talk to you on the next episode. My guest on this episode of Rootbound was Shane Alden, a.k.a. The Wild Dryad. Shane is a forager and botanist in training. You can follow Shane on all the social medias at The Wild Dryad. If you like Rootbound and you want to help the show keep going, you can find out all the ways you can support the show at rootboundpodcast.com support, including signing up for the newsletter, which is going to start sending out newsletters very soon. Rootbound is hosted by Sour Steve Ellington. Music by Christian Kriegeskota. Fake ads by David Lani. Rootbound is a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside, but if you can go outside, enjoy yourself an icy cold glass of pink lemonade, as long as it's not the laundry water kind. Ugh. Rodnunculas!